Hey there, everybody. That is right. Welcome back to The Mound Visit, the catcher's only podcast show. We're not just taking an in-depth look at what goes on behind the plate, but all aspects of what happens around the diamond. We sit down with former aces 60 feet 6 inches away. Also, we go into the dugout and into the minds of a manager's strategy. And at the backfields of spring training complexes, we are diving into the world of catching. I'm one of your hosts, Tyler Goodrow, and on behalf of my other co-host, Chris News, we want to say thanks for hanging in there with us. As instructors, too, this is our in-season time, so we're staying busy. We must also give a shout-out to and thanks to our partners and sponsors, All-Star Sports. It's the holiday season, and what better way than to get your game right this winter with a new CM3000 SBK catcher's mitt. Get prepared and swag out from head to toe by designing your own custom catcher's gear in their mix lap. Or some great stocking stuffers like wrist guards or protective catching gloves. We hope you're all staying safe out there and thank you again for hanging in there. We have two jam-packed episodes coming at you so sit back, relax, take some notes and these episodes are coming at you right now. Thanks for tuning in to the Mound Visit. This is your host, Chris Snooze, my partner, Tyler Goodrow. Uh, we'll be popping in shortly. Uh, today, we got special guest, uh, an old friend of mine back with the Phillies organization, uh, who played for nine years in the big leagues with the Phillies, Giants, Yankees, Rockies, Arizona, and the Blue Jays. Uh, so we'd like to welcome Bobby Estalea to the Mound Visit. Bobby, how's everything going? Everything's good, brother. I appreciate you having me on the show, and uh, hi to everybody that's out there. I just want to say hello, and I appreciate you having me, buddy. Beautiful. So we, uh, we've we been doing this now since the, the whole pandemic started, and it was kind of our way to uh, reach out to some people and just talk catching. There, there hasn't been a lot of platforms out there that um, allow us to just talk about the position. Uh, a lot of our, a lot of both myself and uh, Tyler, we do a lot of training and pretty active on on Twitter, Instagram, and a lot of the stuff we do is just centered around giving kids and, and adults some information. We found out that there's a nice little nice little group of us that all, all does this. So uh, we started getting guys together and just having them on the show, just talking, catching, and uh, kind of went from there. So we're really excited, um, you know, that you can come out here today, take some time off. And uh, we were talking a little bit before we, we jumped on here and and said you're you're at home trying to handle four kids and and uh, running all around and, and how's a what's the house been like during you know during the pandemic and everything? Uh, it's been it's been a little crazy, a little bit hectic for the kids because you know they want to go out and play with their friends and be with their friends and and there's been a lot of things that you know places were in Orlando just outside Orlando, so we, theme parks were closed for a while, so that was kind of taken away from them. But now things are opening up a little bit, little by little. So they've been able to do certain things, certain events, and getting out there and 
starting to play ball a little bit again. So there, it's been a little bit better, but it was crazy for a while, you know. Having four kids at, at the house at any point, you know, <laughs> get a little hairy at the I got, I got two, and I, that's that's about all I can take in our house. A uh, little bit insane, but you you mentioned that. Um, so our your daughter and my son are actually the same age. You know, they're both fourteen. Have you had uh, any any of the boys coming around yet? And do they get scared of you? Have you threatened anybody? <laughs> <laughs> no, luckily I haven't had that point yet. I'm sure it's coming, but um, you know, they're getting to that age where you know curiosity is taking over and. They're they're getting to be a handful, man. I mean, you know it. You see how it is. The the puberty, the testosterone is there, and the kids are there, and you know, and she's a good-looking girl too. And I, I gotta I gotta watch her, man. She I gotta keep her in the right path, you know. And then I got a little one that's six that's right behind her that thinks she's sixteen already too, and she wants to be with the older one already. So absolutely. <laughs> I got my, my, hand. my daughter was uh, no, she's. She's 19, but when she entered when she entered high school, so it's right around 14, <clears throat> the kids that she went to grammar school with, you know, they were they all would know. Oh, there's you know, there's Haley's dad and everything, and and I had set in stone when she was younger. I said, look, if you want to have a boyfriend, that's cool. I said, but they got to play catch with me. And she goes, well, <laughs> dad, you're you know, you're gonna you know, you can't really do that. And I go, well, you know, if if they really like you and they'll respect it. And we'll just play catch. So I'm helping out her her, her uh, grammar school. This is when she's in eighth grade, and helping out on the baseball team. And one of the kids is sitting on the bench, and there's a there's a fence in between the bench and the and the field. And we get done with practice one day, and, and he's like, uh, he's like, Coach Chris, we have um, I got a question for you. And I'm like, Yeah. He goes, Is it true that um, you know if if any of us wanted to could go out with Haley we had to play catch with you and I go maybe why and he goes well how hard do you so he didn't even get the word throw out and at that point I threw the ball in my hand at the fence and as luck would have it it's stuck in the fence <laughs> so the next day when I pick her up at school she gives me this horrible evil eye look and she goes dad really I can't believe you just did that and I go what are you talking about she goes you literally threw a ball through a fence and almost killed like two of our teammates or classmates. Yeah, that like wasn't those. it at all. I said those are those are just all nasty rumors. I said, but you know, part of our job as dads is we gotta we gotta look out for you and make sure that you know, especially if these kids are athletes, you know, we've got to watch out for you on that. But um, yeah, so that it's 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 a little fun. We um we're gonna do a throw out a couple quick questions at you, and just kind of uh kind of see what your what give me a second here. There you go. All right, so I'm gonna throw a couple quick questions out. Just answer them any way you want, and then um, you know, give kind of the people who are listening a just some information about you, kind of get a, a chance to kind of hear your personality. So, start off. What was the uh, what was your favorite MLB park that you played in? My favorite park was San Francisco, the Giants. That's for sure. And what was uh, what was it about that park that you that you enjoyed the most? Um, besides the, all the guys on the team that were great, um, it was the first year of the opening of the new stadium. Um, back then it was called Pac Bell Park. So they, they gave me a nice tour of the stadium before we, uh, you know, opened up the stadium. They showed us all, all the gizmos, the gadgets, everything it had. And, you know, it was just nice. And it made you feel at home, made you feel special. And then every, just the way the atmosphere of all the owners, the way they were and the way they treated you was really special. 
So it, it's almost like a, uh, well, almost like look at from the miners. You know, you go into a, a new stadium, you know, the first time you go up to Scranton, you're like, oh, this is a pretty nice stadium. Obviously, it's a lot different at the major league level, but going in there, you kind of got to experience that in the same manner that the fans were. So you're, you're both kind of first times. What was the locker room like? Did they uh, they go all out with everything, especially with the new park? Yeah, the the locker room was great. I mean, it was like all mahogany wood, um, great, great weight room, um, real big uh, training room, uh, big cafeteria room, media room for us to watch videos. Um, and then the guys, like I said, were great. We were always in there. We're playing ball. We're playing football. We're horse playing all the time in there. And we had music playing. Everybody was having a good time all every time. So it was like a party every time he went to the clubhouse. It was never a sense of dullness. You know, it wasn't quiet. One of them locker rooms where you tiptoed or felt like you had to be quiet or watch your step, watch what you say. It was just, you know, all everything goes. Everybody had fun. It was family oriented. Kids were in there playing. It was great. Now there were there were obviously some some really big name guys on that team. How did that mesh with, uh, you know, with some of the egos? Egos well, all meshed together. Well, you still had my, your. They separated guys. Um, <laughs> you, they put a lot of the Latinos on the one side of the the room just to see if they would get along, and then you know some of the other guys on the other side of the room, and then they put Barry on his old old side of the locker he had a whole wall so he was he was actually by me so which was cool I got to know him on a personal level pretty good and um you know that you can see the egos some of the guys were okay with what he did and how he acted you know some some guys didn't appreciate it I didn't mind because you know as long as he stepped between the lines and did what he did I mean I was cool as long as what you did what you had to do at game time you know that's all that mattered to me I didn't care how you prepared or what you did you know you, you, everybody has their own routine. So, speaking of routine, what was what was Barry's routine when he'd get to the park from a hitting aspect? Only only because I, with all the all the guys that I've ever watched, whether I was younger, or whether in the minors, or even just uh, you know watching spring training and ball and games on television, Bonds is what I would consider probably the best hitter, in my opinion, ever. You know, just the the amount of fear that he put into hitters. Um, guys were, guys never trusted their stuff. They were always afraid to make a mistake. They make a mistake, the ball be hit out. But to square up a ball that consistently and to just not give in, you know, he always either walked or hit a bomb. It was his, just his pitch recognition was, was ridiculous. You know, so what, what did he do during the day? Did he have kind of his own routine or? He had his own routine. He had his own couple of guys that he had that would one one would condition him, one would work him out. And then he had another guy that would prepare his meals. Then he had another guy that would take him and do his workouts with him, hitting, working out, and um, so he had his own routine that he did. And like a lot of times, he would come out late for batting practice or just come out to batting practice and then go upstairs and get his whatever treatment he needed to get done or whatever it was. So he wouldn't stick around and guys would get mad because he was doing things. And I was like, you can't get mad at the guy. The guy's preparing. He's, you know, the guy's doing what he has to do to get on the field. So, you know, come play, you know, game time, he's ready to play and he's doing what he's doing. I mean, he's the best of what he does, but like what you were saying about pitch recognition, I mean, he sat in the dugout, literally. I mean, I can't tell you how many numerous times I literally just watched the pitcher before his arm would get up here and release the ball, he would call the pitch out, slider, change up, fastball. I mean, 10, 12 pitches in a row, and I'm like, 
do you what do you what do you see you know what are you seeing you know it's like when you see it you'll tell yeah and he's like when you figure it out you'll be a good hitter that's all he would tell me and i'm like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, like, thanks I'm, trying, <laughs> I'm trying to be a good hitter buddy you know but he was he was the the best i've ever seen by far and he put on a show every night and it was the barry bond show and and if you missed it, you missed out on a lot, you know, you know aside from all the, all the other circus acts and everything else that went along with it. I mean, he was the best to watch, I thought, best to play with. Wow. That is, a, I mean, outside of the, the monster home runs that he would get, you know, just spitting on balls. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen him look bad on a swing, you know, even, even early as in his career when he was with Pittsburgh and that, but. Shoot, man, that's, um, you know, when you, you talk about hitting, you know, you're, you're one of the guys that I remember when I first got to the Phillies organization, you know, I think the first people I met was, was Gary Bennett, who was on earlier. Um, Eric Wedge was there at the time, you know, and then I remember um, catching a bullpen next to you down at the Carpenter Complex. Everything's lined up, and I think you just came down from camp, and it was when Benito Santiago was with the Phillies. And he was a guy that I always, you know, modeled myself after and always looked up to when I was younger. And uh, kind of the same thing. I remember just asking him, like, hey, man, what was Benito like? And you're like, that was a cool dude, man. He, he had a lot of, lot of information for me. So who were, who were some of your guys? I'm sure Benito was one of them. But, you know, growing up, were there some, were there some other catchers that you kind of looked to? Or, I mean, we didn't have, you know, catching instructors or baseball schools or travel teams like that it was just all who you looked on television who you tried to imitate so who who was your guys it's funny you even said that because my favorite player my idol was always Benito he was my guy he was I wore number nine just like he did I know growing up through little league you know and then my first day the first day that I got to camp that for big league camp I mean I'm literally walking in the door with my bags carrying them and I'm in street clothes and I walk in, the first person I see is Benito and he's like, hey, you want to play catch? <laughs> I drop my bags, <laughs> I drop my bags, grab my glove and I'm like, let's go. He's like, aren't you going to change? I'm like, no, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, awesome. <laughs> that, was, that was a thrill for me. I mean, I have my idol, you know, that I'm walking into camp and he's asking me to play catch. I'm like, it didn't get any better than that. And then he, you know, I, I kind of explained to him and told him a little bit, you know, how I appreciated him. And he kind of, I don't want to say took me under his wing, but he kind of, you know, made sure he made time for me all the time and talked to me and then gave me some pointers and advice all the time. Then I got to play with him, of course, again in San Francisco, which was really nice. And, you know, so we met up again in San Francisco. And, um, you know, it was just a pleasure to work with, you know, to be able to say you got to play with your idol is just, you know, it's mind blowing at times. But, um, you know, my dad would always ask, why don't you like Pudge or, you know, Ivan Rodriguez, anybody else? And I'm like, I just like Benito because he threw from his knees and I thought that was the coolest thing, you know. And if I could do that, I said, I'd be just like him. And then next thing you know. You know, I try to imitate him and try to be like him, and then we got to play with him, which was always an honor, and it's, it was great. But um, as far as other catching instructors that we had, there weren't really too many. Like you said, we had Glenn Brummer, that was uh, our catching instructor at the time with the Phillies. Um, not, you know, he was a good guy. Just um, he was very old school, old in tradition. Yeah, I think he had a metal plate in his head too. Yeah, he had Brum, some. Brum yeah. was definitely he was our. Uh, <clears throat> He was our rookie ball 
up in Batavia. He was our uh, our guy for the for the summer. Him and then Roy uh, Floyd Rayford were there too. But Brom was there for the first the first week, and he's sitting down there with his you know taking his fungal bed and crawling on the ground like he's in the army. And you know, yeah, we had no idea what was wrong with this guy. And but yeah, I, I got a chance to sit down and talk a little bit of catching with you know with him and with Rayford with uh, Donnie McCormick and. You know, all those guys had some really good, really good insight. We go, want to go back to Benito. So what was, besides throwing from the knees, now he did, watching his old tapes when he received, he did a lot of the loading with the glove that you see now. You know, right. when, he was, when he was catching, he would show the target where he wanted, and then he would drop it down. He'd actually almost touch the ground, coming inside to his, to his left foot and then work his way back in, which is what you see a lot of the guys do here. Was that something that you were you worked on early on? Yeah, definitely. Um, I do the same thing like that, show the target, and I would wait and then slide over. And um, I try to be, you know, trying to mimic my movements kind of like him because I just like how smooth he was behind a plate. Nothing, nothing seemed like it was edgy or quick or like he was out of place. So everything seemed like he was just a flowing motion, everything back and forth whenever he moved. It was smooth even when he picked off guys everything was set his feet were set and everything was smooth sliding and, and, he, and he tried to show me that he was showing me how to pick off guys at first on, you know on your knees sliding um and we did a couple drills a couple days like that where we worked on you know the sliding on your knees and and how to, how to get behind the hitter uh, a lefty and slide and how to call pitches and set up that pitch so you could do it so it, he, he gave a lot of a lot of insight and things on how he did it but everything, everything worked on his legs and his and the bottom of his palms of his feet before he moved everything. So everything was along the lower hinge of your lower half. So I mean, he was smooth with it, and you had to be have strong core to do it, and he did. He was one of the guys. Now, if you if you look at the position, like right now, it's probably at an all tie high for guys that are athletic. You know, there were back in the day, you could throw guys back there that would get the job done, but they weren't. They weren't specimens, you know. They they weren't like you look at a kid like uh, like J T. Realmuto or Ian Gomes. Those guys are those guys are shredded, and they look like they go out and run a marathon if they needed to. And yeah. Benito was was he was like that. He had there was no no ounce of fat on his body. He was super long, lean, and yeah. yeah. When he when he did everything, everything just went. It was it was like the flow. It was like a slow motion. But there was no no jerky motions in, in anything. Yeah. I got I got a chance to when I was with Pittsburgh, he was over there. So I had my the training glove I designed for All Star, the little uh, the little pocket they call. I had a couple of those out there with me. The one day we're in we're in the outfield in uh, batting practice, and he comes over and he's like, you know, where did you get one of these? Let me see it. So you know, right off the bat, I got a few of them. I'm like, oh, you know, go ahead and take it. You know, and hooked me up with some bats and that's all I cared about but yeah I was like a I was like a little kid trying to bite my tongue and not act like you know like that guy going oh my god I used to look up to you when I was in high school because you know he'd probably be like making me feel older than what I am right now so but yeah he was guys like that you know him and um, you know another guy I got to work with Charlie O'Brien uh, when I was in Montreal seeing guys like that that have caught in the big leagues for that long that had their own special style and technique. It's just there's so much, so much information you can get just from watching. So um, back into the back into that, Bobby. 
one of the things that they've, the game, I mean, the game has changed a lot since we got done playing. You know, for for one, there's no there's no more collisions. You got basically robot strike zones. You got a, a box on television. You know, how many? This is gonna be a little funny considering you're kind of a big guy. How many collisions did you get into when you were playing both minor leagues and the major leagues? Well, um, I got in quite a bit, but I think I set the tone early that, you know, if you're coming in, you're going to get hit. Um, so I wasn't one to sit back and take a hit. I was going to hit you too, let you know what it felt like come in. So you think about sliding next time, you know, and not trying to run me over. But um, I, I like that part of the game. I enjoyed that part of the game. I really, I, I really, you know, it's, it's unfortunate they took that part of the game out because it was, you know, it was exciting and it was always a good play. It was, and then, you know, if the catchers had practiced it enough, and that's what I think did happen with these guys, they had never practiced it enough or had enough time behind the plate where they had collisions or, or worked on it or did plays at the plate because you would know better than to get down on your knees. You don't go down on your knees for a play at the plate. Nowadays, you can, and you can do whatever you want, one-handed, slide in, go head first, because they're sliding, and you know they're going to slide. But back then, you knew you had to hold your ground, and you had to hold your leg, and, you know, if you're going to come in, you better have a strong base, you know? And mm -hmm. I enjoyed that part of the game physically. I mean, but, you know, they took it away, and I understand, you know, they want to keep guys safe, and I, and I understand that part of the game. But I, I honestly think it was just lack of knowledge to the newer guys that have never – maybe didn't play enough catcher or didn't get taught enough well enough how to how to block the plate because if you do and you work on it you know what you you know the stance you got to do is just like anything else you know how to stand you know how to block and you know how to take a hit and roll with it if you have to or you know how to get out of the way so i mean is if these guys did that a little bit more which we took a lot of practicing with the phillies we used to practice yep. that a lot I remember when with Glenn Brummer and doing it with him and Don McCormick, and we used to work with it all the time. And, and it was a fun part of the game, I thought. But you had to learn and you had to practice. If you never did it, you're going to get hurt. And that's what happened to these guys, I think. So there, there were a couple when we were doing the, the flyer for the show and everything. So I searched out a couple pictures. And there's a couple of you out there, plays at the plate, had the mask off. Yeah. So were you were you a – take off the mask or did, did you want to leave it on? What was kind of your, what was your thought process with that? I usually took it off because I wanted to see the throw and read the throw and then I would throw it at the, at the runner. So wherever he was running into, I would throw it in his path. So he would have to trip or go over it or go around it or whatever. So make him think about it, slow him down. And whatever I could do to slow him down, I would kick the bat in that way and I would throw the helmet that way. And hopefully the umpire didn't get it out of the way in time. <laughs> that's but that's would, the old school sure trick right there. I'd make sure the throw was coming in. It wasn't in the direction. And then I would toss the helmet at the last minute. Oh. So if you knew that you, let's say there's a, you know, you got a runner coming around third, throw from center, gives you a nice little, little hop. Maybe it takes a couple hops there and ball's coming in low and you hear, you hear your boy trucking down the line. Oh yeah. What's kind, what kind of goes through your head? Are you thinking I got to get low? I got to let the ball come into me. I got to stay I got to stay relaxed. Like, what goes on? Because this is a part of the game that, I mean, I loved it. I mean, I, I played hockey when I was younger, and all I did was this was an opportunity for me to either use a hip check or to roll backwards and let him fly right over me, you know, or if he's going to come up high, maybe I, can, maybe I can get a little shot in if I need to. But I always wanted to stay tight. 
when you um when kids today and they see Posey, who I'm assuming was was coming up when when you were up there, right? So he was just a kid that was probably knocking on the door. Yep. So yep, when yep. when he yep. goes down there and and now he's a converted shortstop. So you know he wasn't a guy that I don't think he he played a ton behind the plate because he was a he was a closer and he was a, he was a shortstop. Um, but when you get moved over there, that's that was probably the biggest thing of. You know, why was he, why was he not taught this? You know, how do you, what makes you think that you, you're going to be on both knees for a guy that's running as hard as he can and that you're going to be able to absorb that? That's so what I, when, that's what I'm saying. That's the, exactly what I was getting at. I didn't want to mention the play, but that was the play that I was getting at. Cause when you know better and you've practiced it, you don't go down on two knees and then sit there like a mannequin waiting for somebody that's running full speed to blow you over. I mean, you have no shot. You're just looking to get hurt. There's no way you could even roll over at that point and take the blow. So, I mean, what I tried to do always was, as long as I had my back foot on, with the direction of first base, right field, if I had that back foot planted and I had my left foot planted towards you at third base as the runner coming in, I built a wall right there. That's a wall. If I had that when I caught the ball, you were done. Because I was swinging at you with that stance. So, <laughs> you know, when you come in, I mean, I'm going to absorb the blow. It's, you're going to get hurt. It's like hitting a – basically like hitting a telephone pole. You're not going to move. I've seen them wrap around my leg. I mean, it, it's, if, I, if I have that stance, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get – you're going to So you were, you were more of a – you had your your right leg behind your left leg so you were yeah. exactly what you said a wall where yeah. you know you'll see guys are might might be open and, and kind of the biggest thing was make sure your left foot is angled down the third baseline so in case they take you out in your legs it's going to bend naturally you're not going to get hurt yeah no i'm me you would have to slide me my like physically slide my whole body like and and I and I've done that. I've taken a blow like you hit me, and all I did was slide six inches. That's it. I just slid six inches. My whole body didn't even move, and you're wrapped around my leg, and I'm trying to pick you up, help you up. And all he's looking for <laughs> the train. You know? and I'm like, I you know, I leave you a space to the left to slide if you want to slide. Yeah. You want to go around and slide. There's a space. If you don't, you're gonna get hurt. That's how he played it. You know. I mean, I'm not looking to get hurt, and I don't want to hurt anybody, but. You know, at the same time, you're running at me full speed with your chin down. I'm not going to take that blow. That is, that's the first time I've heard that. Most, most of the time, everyone's like, well, I just got to get in a position not to get hit too hard or I got to deflect it. And you're like, screw that. If you want to try to go through me, then see what you can do. But I don't think you can. No. And I, and I took that. And I, honestly, that was one, one thing I took from Glenn Brummer, if I took anything. He, he stepped on home plate one day and he said, this belongs to the property of the Philadelphia Phillies. He goes, every run that goes through here is your responsibility. So you take responsibility of who goes through you. So are you going to stop that guy from coming or are you going to, you know, going to let him come in? And I'm like, well, I'm going to stop him. So that was just my mentality. I kind of took that over. If I learned anything from Brummer, which wasn't much, that was, it. So that was enough. He was, like I said, Brum was a, he was a very old school guy. He had, I mean, giant giant paws for hands him and uh -huh. him and floyd Rayford did their Mitten. hands were like sausages you know they i mean those things are huge but yeah i mean it was it was kind of the same thing brum always told me he goes you you worry too much about your arm he goes all i'm trying to do is get rid of it you know so he was one of the first guys that came up to me and said you don't have to use your arm 
He goes, you just have to get rid of it and your arm will be there if you trust it. So I have no idea what he meant by that, but I figured it out, you know, years later. And then I'm like, oh shit, this is what, uh, this is what Brummer was talking about. You yeah. know, but so when you were, you, you, you're from South Florida originally, yeah. what was kind of your, your path? You know, how did you end up with the Phillies and then kind of take everybody through your, um, through your journey from the minor leagues up to, you know, the major leagues with starting off with the Phils and then, you know, kind of bouncing around for, for a number of years. Yeah. Um, well, I went, I went to high school at Cooper City High School in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale. And then um, I got drafted out of high school. I mean, they were the Phillies were the last team I thought were going to draft me. I, mean, I talked to other teams and then I got the phone call that the Phillies drafted me. But I ended up saying I was going to go to college, so I went to Miami-Dade Junior College um, for one, uh, one, one, one year. And then I ended up signing with the Phillies before the draft the following year. So I guess I got like a draft and follow. Okay. Uh, but then, uh, you know, when I signed with the Phillies, they sent me to Martinsville. I, I skipped Batavia. I went to Martinsville, rookie ball. And, um, you know, that was quite the experiment. You know, you're 18 years old and I was straight out of college. I was only 18, but I graduated early and then, um, you know, it was the whole process of learning how to live on your own, do all the things. And that was more of a process for me than it was playing, playing the ball. Well, that was the easy part for me. It was the whole part of having to find a place to live, who's going to make my meals, who's going to, you know, do my laundry, all that stuff. You know, I, you had to grow up pretty quick. So um, from that point, though, um, I, I jumped from Martinsville to Clearwater to high A in the same year. And then the next year they sent me to Spartanburg low a um they you know they wanted to develop me a little bit slower they said and i said okay that's fine you know um i had a little rough year i guess you know learning um learning everything and absorbing everything a first full season was a long year for me i don't know how it was for most people but i know the first year for me i felt long i felt like i was away from home long and just learning how to play be on your own and so I came into the next year to go to high A ball to Clearwater. And I said, that's when I decided, I said, I'm going to make this either start becoming a lot better, fun. I'm going to start working out. I'm going to start changing my diet, my routine. I did everything. I said, I started looking up workouts, how to work out. And you know, I started going to the Gold's Gym and learning how the bodybuilders would work out and started kind of training like them. And then doing my conditioning on the field, I said, I'm going to give it everything I got. And if it works out, you know, then I'm going to continue doing this. And, you know, I had a, had a really good year um, in the Florida State League. I don't remember what I hit. Like, they had like 260, like 15, 17 home runs, which wasn't bad for the Florida State League. And then uh, they moved me up to AA Reading. And uh, we caught, I caught the championships up there. We were in the playoffs there when they called me up. And um, we ended up winning uh, the championships, which was, that was exciting. That was cool to see and good process to go through. And then the following year, I went to AAA. Uh, I got my big league invite after that year, so everything worked out, you know. So I got, that was the year I got my first big league invite. And I said, I'm going to go home and do the same thing all over. I said, I'm going to train harder, which I did. I, you know, I, I don't think I took but two days off the whole offseason. 
Um, and I work out every day. When I say work out every day, I'm talking going to the gym from the gym every morning to running, conditioning, from running, conditioning, going to hit, and then going to catch pictures at the high school or college, wherever it was. I find I find a high school, even uh, Nova, Nova High School and the university will let me catch their pictures. And then they had their batting practice and then let me hit off their pictures too and do their training. So, which was nice. And, uh, you know, I donated a bunch of gear to them for letting me do it. And they let me come back every year with open arms. So I had a place to work out, people to worship me. And, you know, it, it made, made my off season a lot easier and the process a lot easier to take. And then that year, you know, I went, started off in double A with Reading, which was 96. So 96, I went double A. I got, they told me on my birthday, um, August 23rd, that I'm gonna go to AAA. They're calling me up to AAA on my birthday and they said, well, you're gonna spend 10 days in AAA and then we're gonna call you up to the big leagues. So go down in there and just do what you gotta do and then we're gonna call you up. And I said, okay, I said, no problem. So I went up there, I did good, I had a good 10 days. And as promised, they, they, they called me up and got my first taste of the big leagues in 96. So that was my first year um, in the big leagues. And then um, everything went well. I mean, I had a great time. I got up there with the team where, you know, it was with Schilling, um, Darren Dalton and Cavilia, Stocker, you know, Morandini. Um, the whole uh, 93 championship team was still basically intact. And then, um, you know, being the young kid on that, on that it was a little intimidating because, you know, everybody was older. I was the young kid on the block. I was only 22 at the time, and uh, it was, you know, it was just a, a little adjusting period, which, which was, you know, which was nice. And uh, we had a good manager at the time. It was Jim Fergosi, um, which I liked very much. And um, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, um, he he got changed the next year, and he told me actually that he was going to have me come back and be the starting catcher the following year, and we're going to send you to Arizona and you're going to play fall ball and then we're going to be in touch in the off season. Well, in the off season, he got fired and they hired Terry Francona. Mm -hmm. And then Terry Francona flew up, flew out to Arizona to come see me and just to tell me that, Hey, uh, just get ready for triple A. You're going back to triple A next year. So I was like kind of bummed out. I haven't even gone to spring training. He hasn't even seen me play. Right. And you know, he's telling me you're going back to triple A. So it was kind of, you know, it was a hard pill to swallow, you know, at that point. But it was like, okay, then let me just go down there and work on what I have to do and to get back up. So I went back to triple A, made the all-star team, did good. And then they called me back up. So I got, you know, back up in the big leagues again, got my taste. But um, my journey with the Phillies with that was basically they, you know, I was backing up to Mike Lieberthal and they had me basically, you know, in AAA as insurance and give me, you know, my, my little spots and cups of coffee whenever they could or whatever, or if he got injured, they'd call me up or something uh, until they traded me. And then I finally got an opportunity with the Giants when they traded me in uh, December of 99. And then from that point, I went to the Giants for, you know, two years, um, spent 2000 and then 2001 on 4th of July, I got traded to the Yankees. Um, so I got to go there and then be you know <laughs> part part of the World Series there, which was real cool. Um, unfortunately, ring? unfortunately, we lost to the Diamondbacks, but we should have got an American League championship ring, you know. They didn't and give it to you. Steinbrenner said we're not giving out second place rings this year. Nobody is getting a, a championship ring. I do remember that. <clears throat> I do remember that. So actually, the funny thing with that is I was I started two thousand and one off. 
I got to stay home in Buffalo because I signed with the Indians. So I was actually playing for Eric Wedge was the manager. So the team was, I mean, he didn't even have to do anything. It was basically a, a big league team. And he just sat down there and said, okay, let's just go win. And I think we lost like three games in the first two months. It was just insane. But anyways, um, so I go from not playing there and playing behind Tim Laker. I've got one at bat in two and a half months. Get get my release, and I actually go to the Yankees. And this is the only year that I've ever hit. I was hitting like 380 in, in Norwich, and then saw you got you came over and they traded and brought you over there. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, it seems like we're you know the Phillies guys always pop up and and this and that and find you around and then I ended up uh I went back to them the following year but you know it was kind of a guys take triple a assignments you got a couple prospects so that's kind of where I got into no man's land and jump ship and and finished off with uh with the pirates for those guys but needless to say the Yankees did you now you didn't go through spring training with them you just went from from a year no, not that year. I went to spring training with them the next year. Okay, okay. So let me let me ask you this, because when I was in camp with them for a little bit, different type of atmosphere. Totally. Right? Everyone, everyone is I, – I was with those, so I had the guys from – that I knew from Montreal that came over there with, uh, with Teddy Lilly and, and Chris Widger was over there and, you know, a couple other ones. But I remember we would – we would be hanging out and talking and you'd see Steinbrenner walk in and it just went crickets. You know, it was just like dead silent. And you had your, you know, you had Clemens and Messina and Wells, the three lockers there and everything was so segregated. And it was just, I think the only guy that was, that would talk was uh, Giambi because him just, he was kind of a free spirit anyways. And, you know, he would always talk to everybody, but what was that kind of, what was your camp experience like? Um, you know, with those guys, considering you, they had you in the big leagues with them. Well, um, I'll tell you how it was first beforehand with the big leagues and uh, with the Yankees when they called me up and I, and I was with them, they put me in a locker next to Mariano Rivera. And so I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking it's like the giants, you know, I'm coming in there and I'm going to play some music and I'm going <laughs> to, <laughs> no, no, you could hear a pin drop in that place, man. There was nobody. And then there you got guys, I don't know if you ever seen the inside of that locker room, but there was pillars that went around the whole locker room, pillars, big pillars, and then the New York Yankee carpet. And at every pillar, there was a guy that was standing with a suit, suit and tie, and, and with a little radio piece. Like, you don't know what the heck. He looked like he's important, but I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> you know, why, what are you in the locker room for? So Mariano told me, he's like, Bobby, do me a favor. Get dressed, and let's go out on the field, and let's talk. I said, Okay. So uh, I got dressed, we went out on the field, and then uh, he's like, listen, um, I know you're coming from the Giants, and you guys have a lot of fun, and you're playing and doing, you know, but you, those guys that are standing at the pillars, those are Steinbrenner's ears. They want to hear what you did that night, what you did if you went out, okay. and they go straight to Steinbrenner's office and tell him everything you just said or did so they could pull you out of the game or do whatever they have to do. So be careful what you say and what you're doing here. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> that's insane. Usually, yeah. I mean, a, a clubhouse, that's your safe haven from everything. You know, yeah. But, so they had, it was like Secret Service down there. 
That's what it was, man. And 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 it was a it was a different time because we went through nine eleven. So you already had all the Secret Service and all these people. That's why you didn't know who these people were in the clubhouse. I'm like, who are these people that are wearing suits in the clubhouse? Like, and why are they standing at all the pillars? You know, they're standing around because it was a big circle, the locker room, and it was pillars everywhere. So they stood surrounding all the lockers and listening to everybody's conversation. So nobody would talk. Everybody in the clubhouse was the quietest clubhouse, no music, nothing. I mean, people would go into the cafeteria and still be quiet. I'm wondering why everyone's whispering. And I'm like, this is crazy. You know, I'm like, I don't understand until he explained it to me. And then I was like, okay, I get it. I'll be quiet. I, I could play along, you know, but that's what they want. They want everybody to march to that beat, be quiet, you know, just do your job. And that's it. You know, be, be seen, not heard basically. <laughs> so I just, I just remember in spring training in the, the only noise you heard was the, um, their little, guy that stood there and made smoothies for everybody if you wanted one that's the only noise i would hear sports center was you know always on very low and it was it was just like it was one of the strangest environments i've ever been but you look at it that was the time when they they were running show on on everybody i mean they were yep. the amount of hall of famers on that in that lineup was in that locker room was just ridiculous you know yeah, and, no. and each of them was was as professional as you can get and they all did their job and yeah i mean maybe that's maybe that's why they were you know it was, everything was just strictly strictly business it's all business it was, I, lo I lost you oh hang on okay I there we now. go yep yeah, so, yeah it was just one of the one of those things where you know maybe that's Maybe that's why they had the success because they were on lockdown and it was, you know, you're here for business and winning games and that's it. And that's how it was too on the flights. I mean, uh, every on the flights and the hotels, everywhere you went, it was just, you could see everybody's, you know, they're, they're straight, you know, like horse blinders, basically everybody's there for business. That's all it is. Let's get the job done. And, you know, there was no horseplay, you know, I missed that part. The only one I really horseplayed was like you said, Giambi. Giambi was always playing around and he would joke around with me and play with me and then kind of wrestle around. But then we kind of like, okay, we knew when to, you know, shut it down. So other guys, you know, didn't bring attention. But other than that, nobody else really played around. It was so serious in that locker room. I mean, they treated the game so serious. Leaving the Giants where we were playing, bumping music, jamming, playing, and then coming to that locker room where you could hear a pin drop, like you said. I mean, it was quite a different experience. And of course, you know, you had to shave your shave your sideburns and your no mustache, no, no, nothing. So you had to be clean cut. <laughs> I had to do everything. So yeah, I, I, now listen, I think you had your, you had your, uh, the 90210 side, uh, sideburns there that were yeah. perfectly trimmed for as long as I can remember on you. And, um, so the Yankees, when, when I went over there, I had Stump Merrill as my, my manager. And the first thing that he showed me, besides the fact it was his 1930 donut glove that he had, asking me if you think you could catch with this, because that's what real men catch. And then he stands in front of me and drops his pants. And I just got off the plane. I don't know what the hell he's doing. And he goes, I'm going to show you how to do the Yankee blouse. Still have no idea what he's talking about. And then he, then he shows me how to roll up the pants. And he goes, now go get your pants and you're going to do it in front of me. So I had, to, I had to drop my pants, put the pants back on to make sure they were bloused the perfect way. And that's when I got into the locker room before I even met any of the guys. And I'm seeing them and now I'm just like, wow, everything is like perfectly, you know, three inches below the kneecap or halfway in between your calf. And 
yeah. you know, facial hair whatsoever. And yeah, so yeah. that would have been, that would have been probably the first time I would have seen you without, without sideburns or goatee and, you know. Yeah, I don't have anything yeah, and man. no chains, no earrings and no, <laughs> my, I, I so didn't how, mind the pants because I could wear the pants high. I already did that. that didn't you usually did me. that anyways, right? Yeah, I did that anyway, but I had to button to the top, you know, so everything had to be buttoned to the top and no change showing. I mean, it was, it was different. It was, it was different. Uh, even with the, on, on our flights, you had to wear full suit and tie. Everything had to be professional, you know, no casual, no casual day, no, no tie day or nothing. Everything was always to the hilt, to the T, you know, everybody. Probably no, no card games going on on those flights either, huh? No, no, I don't remember any of that. It was, everybody was serious, sitting down and you know, on, on their own laptop or something and being quiet. So it was, it was weird. It was different. So what was, so with the amount of people that they had, I mean, you, you had guys like Clemens, Messina, Pettit, um, Wells, Mariano, um, Posada, right? So when you guys went through your your first meeting of the, you know, of a series. You, know, you get in there, you go over your hitters. What, how intense was that? Like, how, how, what was their routine? Like, we've heard a couple different, different guys, you know, talk about their, their routine. Schilling actually told us how, you know, how he would go in and he would direct kind of a meeting um, with the teams that he was on. But what was the, what was the Yankees like, you know, going through a, a meeting to prepare for, you know, let's say preparing against the Red Sox? Yeah, it was a, uh... It would be the pitchers and catchers, Stoudemire, and um, some guy on the phone. And some guy on the phone would dictate the meeting along with Stoudemire. And they would go through one-on-one -on -one each pitcher. Um, they go through the hitters. And then we will go have the meeting of how we're going to attack each hitter with our pitchers and with their faults. Right now, we want to know who's hot, who's not, and – don't worry about the script that you had last time or last, you know, last week's memos. We want, we want to know what they're doing this week, how they're playing this week. So everything was always up to date. So how they, what they were capable of or not capable of might've changed. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, it was intense, but nobody said a word other than Stoudemire and the guy on the phone. Nobody said a word. And you had to be in there with your books, writing everything down. So, or if you didn't act like you were anyway, act like you were writing and taking some notes because they wanted to make sure you were studying and doing what you had to do. And then you had to go, obviously you had to go over um, with the pitchers and the guys in the bullpen, um, who's coming up. And they, they would do that too. Like if, like if I wasn't playing that game, which mostly I wasn't, I would be in the bullpen because um, Posada caught every day. Um, we, we will be talking about, okay, this is a situation, whoever's coming up next, you're going to be facing X, Y, Z hitters. This is how we're going to attack them. And then we would talk about it too. And just in case I got in the game. So mentally you'd be drained, man, by the time the game's over because you're going through every, every, every hitter. I mean, every, every hitter throughout the game, but also with every reliever for the situation coming up, you know? So they're always ready, like in a bullpen too, talking and studying. So, and that's all they did. And except for Mariano, he would come in, you know, like wake up in the seventh inning from taking his nap. And then he would come out to the bullpen, start stretching, get ready, because he knew he had the ninth no matter what. So yeah. mm -hmm. he was on a different schedule, which was fine. But other than that, all the other guys, they wanted to know who was up, what are their tendencies, and we had to talk about it. So it was it was cool. I mean, it's a different way to approach it. I mean, it just mentally drains you a little bit. But 
I can't imagine going a whole full season doing that like that. Um, I mean, with the Giants, we, I mean, we studied, we, we would have our meeting, but we didn't go through it like every game and, you know, every situation, every, you know, we had our meetings with the pitcher we were going to catch that day. That was it, you know, and then you knew your relievers and you knew what you had to do as a catcher because you already were in the meetings and had it, but, you know, and then we'd have the meeting. You have to stay for the next meeting too afterwards, which would be the position players, going, you know, talking about the opposition pitchers and what they're doing and their tendencies and how they attacked you last time versus how they might attack you this time. So that was a little more interesting to me because, you know, you got to talk. At least guys, the players got to put a little input and say things. So, but the pitchers and catchers meeting, man, it was like generic, man. Let them talk, you shut up, and you listen, and you take notes, and that was it. So how was it then when, after the Yankees, you went to Colorado then, right? Yep, yep. Actually, I, um, I went to spring training in 2002 with the Yankees, and they wanted to send me to AAA, and I, I turned down the offer. And, but, you know, they, they still wanted to pay you, you know, good money. But I was like, I'll take less money and go to the Rockies, um, which, you know, I had a guarantee. You know, they told me they could guarantee me. They asked me if I had a, a good enough spring training to start right away. That's what, that's what Widger did. Widger did yeah. that, I believe. So I, I said I needed, I needed a little more hitting, I told them. I said, because I caught every day. I said I just didn't get enough at-bats. So they said, okay, we'll send you to the minor leagues for a couple of weeks and we'll call you up when you're ready. And I said, okay. So they did. They sent me there for a couple of weeks. And I think I spent three weeks there and then they, they called me up. And it was wonderful, man. The Rockies were fun. They were like, they were kind of like, kind of like the Giants atmosphere where everybody was having fun. It was a good locker room. The ballpark is beautiful. And, you know, everybody had a good time in there. Everybody would talk and, you know, horse around. And we, it was back to normal again, I guess. For me, anyway, because that was the kind of atmosphere I liked. It, you know, it was like that in Philly too. You know, everybody joked around and had fun, and you know, and then it was a little more casual too and laid back. You didn't have to have formal dress. We did, you know, some some flights were formal, some you know were less, and then we'd have family days too. We'd have family come on trips, which were nice. You know, was, you could bring your wife and your kids if you wanted, and they were very family oriented, very family oriented over there. So yeah, it was always had the kids, and everybody had their kids in the locker room playing. It was it was nice. Cool. So the we had um, we had their catcher on, you know, one of our first sh first couple shows, Tony Walters, and he was kind of going through, you know, kind of what the organization philosophy was, and you know how he came over there, and kind of what they teach. So if you look at the uh, how much how much baseball do you watch right now? I, I'm, I'm a lot more into it now than I was in the past. So I, I would say in the last couple of years, I've been watching a lot. What do you, what do you think then? Because the, the, the position, obviously, it's like night and day from when we played. You know, I would, mm -hmm. I would kind of argue with these guys, actually for about a good year, um, arguing on Twitter when everyone started going to the, the one knee stances and I'm sitting there going, look, Jason Kendall had his butt on the ground and he was low and that's what he did, the same thing. Why are we why are we dropping down here? Why do we have so much movement? You know, why is the glove moving what looks like two feet to try to get in the zone? This was stuff that, you know, we would joke about of kids that would come out of college. You know, he's you know, he's a college receiver. You gotta get big, you gotta get wide, you gotta let the ball come to you, you know, you gotta be quiet. And then it was like a complete opposite. So yep. what what was originally when you started seeing all these different stances pop up with uh you know, the Tony Pena's type stances and the one knee down, guys are, are throwing from a one knee, 
popping up and throwing. What was going on in your head when you first saw this? Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I did it not much, but I would pick my spots when I did it, you know? Like, if I really had to bury some pitches, I would get down and do what I had to do. But and not as regular like it is now. I mean, to me, they when I was catching, they always told me, you know, not to be throwing from your knees so much. Stand up, just, you know, stand up and give a good throw back to the pitcher. Do that, you know, and it shows that you're not being lazy, I guess. Now, to me, I don't – I see where it, it could be easier because I, I used to always want to just throw it, flip it back and stay on my knees and, you know, and it would have been easier for me. But um, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I think it, it lacks, it lacks a lot. It lacks, to me, it lacks a lot of um, just the way they used to teach it, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of like guys setting up the way they used to. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan of all the whole one knee things and hanging out. Um, because you see what happens, man. They don't get to their spots. They don't block the balls. They don't block as well. They don't. They don't shift into position as well. Yeah, you 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 still catch the ball and frame it. Anybody could do that. You could do that on your knees and sitting down on the floor if you want. But you're you're still. I, you can still give a good target, a good ball for your pitcher and be in a good position on your knees you know and get low and you don't have to be on your one crouch and one thing and and it just puts a lot of emphasis on your pitchers to be more perfect that they're not you know now now they're stressed to be making a perfect pitch and it might stress them to miss the zone because if they miss perfect they know that you're not going to block it you're not going to get there you're not going to be there in that spot so i think it puts more pressure on the pitchers actually if anything than it does for the catchers. The catchers would be, be like, hey, it got away. It was a bad pitch. It was in the dirt anyway. And now all he's doing is shoveling his glove to it, and he's not getting in front of it. And you see a lot of balls kick off, which I'm not a big fan of, you know, to be honest with you. You know, just like, I mean, you see that a lot with, uh, what's his name, from the Yankee, Sanchez. He does that a lot, and he's always pushing the glove out to try to block it with the glove. And he's not very good at blocking balls. I mean, yeah, he can hit the ball, whatever. That's great. But, you know, what, what about behind the plate? Where's that Where's that job? What, what happened to that? That's what I yeah, want. He lost, lost his job basically in the playoffs this year. Yeah. You know, and, there's, there's, and from a guy that basically was blocking everything, you know, good set of hands. Now, it, it's – we played, in, and I think the game was more side to side. It was, you know, get ahead with a strike you know, come in hard and then work the corners. You know, those are the pitches that we would try to steal six, seven inches off the plate and see if you can slightly absorb and maybe move in a couple inches to get that one or set it up so part of my glove's on the corner, let the ball just hit it without moving to get that strike. Now with the guys that throw, you know, guys throw way a lot harder than they did, I think, at least when I played. I mean, we'd always prepare for, maybe one or two guys that would that would be a 95 guy plus but now it's like everyone their brother throws 100 but i think that the the main premise is the game right now seems like it's more north and south versus east and west so guys yeah. are are being taught to throw that ball you know almost behind the plate off the dirt and let your catcher try to try to manipulate it in a way so the umpire doesn't have a visual of where the bottom of the zone is as long as you're moving fast through the ball, it looks like you're absorbing, and they know they're moving it, but they just can't. It happens so fast; they can't, you know, deter. They can't determine exactly where the where the pitch was, you know. Yeah. So, when you would set up, you know, if you wanted a pitch, because you always want to work on the knees, obviously. 
but if we're working the very bottom of the zone, where did you, without being on a knee, where did you set up your glove? Did you set it up underneath? You know, you had a little bit of a roll, a little bit of a, you know, mm -hmm. a little bit of a trigger. You know, how did you, how did you go about that to relax your hand in order to take that pitch? I used to make pretend um, the ball was an egg. And when I did drills, I would cut the ball like it was an egg. Don't, you don't want to, you want to absorb it with your hand, kind of like shock it in and absorb it where you weren't going out stiff to catch it. Now you're being firm. So to me, it was, the rollover was just a natural way for me to catch the ball. And I would just place it in front of my knee, below my knee, like rest my hand on, on my knee. And then as the pitch come, I would lift my hand a little bit and just roll it. So I, I would just try to, and that was a lot easier for sinker ballers because so, we had a lot of sinker ballers, especially in Colorado. They want everybody to be a sinker baller and everybody was throwing low in the zone. So, you know, that was something that me and Charles Johnson, you know, had to work on and we had to work together for that, uh, help him a little bit too, because he, he had a hard time being a bigger guy, absorbing that and, and being able to bring that hand up like that. But, um, yeah, now, now they do work a lot north and south. And I think it's because they're calling a lot more of the high pitch. When we played, they gave you a lot more, you know, east-west. You know, they gave you those pitches on the outside where now the, that they're magnified with the zone, with the zone counter, they're giving high pitches more and low pitches more, but they're not giving out in the corners as much as, you know, if you notice. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if they, I mean, they miss an inch off the plate, they're not getting that pitch anymore. I mean, unless there's a couple umpires that, that'll call it still, but in general, they're going they're going north and south now, and 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 that's how it should have been always north south you know east and west. You work for all quadrants, but right now it's with these guys throwing so hard. You want to throw you want to throw up in the zone with these guys that are throwing hard. You know it's harder to catch up to the 100 miles an hour. You know you got these arms. Everybody's throwing 98, 100 now. It's it's unbelievable. And then they all got nasty change-ups to go with it. They go on, you know, so why not work high in the zone and then drop down and change up or split You know, they're doing great with it, you know. But one of the, it, one of the things I saw this year was in the playoffs, even the breaking pitches, you know, those are being thrown at the top high. of the zone, which I, yeah. I've never, you know, I would have never thought anything like that. But I'm, I'm seeing guys taking a little bit off a curveball and trying to, trying to drop it in at the very top of the zone, which – Obviously, it makes sense thinking about it because it's going to, out of the hand, it's going to look like, well, that thing's high. It's not going to be a, a strike. Mm -hmm. And then catcher lets it drop in and, and pulls it down a couple inches. And, you know, it's a whole different, whole different well, part of the game, you know. When a guy is throwing that hard and, and he's throwing you high heat and then you see a breaking ball come out of that eye level, you're going to, tendency is to kind of give up on it at first because it's going to come up off a high slope off a higher slope from that fastball, but then it's going to drop down, down into the zone at the end where we're taught to hit those hanging breaking balls and swing at the high. I, I remember when I played, they always told me, you know, if it's high, let it fly. And you, know, you threw a high breaking ball, I was swinging no matter what. You know, if you threw it low, you know, hey, that was, you got me. I wasn't trying to swing at that. But if you threw it high, I would try to swing at the high breaking ball. Sure, I had a better opportunity of getting that one out of the park. But those, you know, they pitch now with the higher breaking ball, but that's coming off of a higher velocity fastball too. So it makes, does make sense to do it because, you know, guys do give up on it. And then, you know, I would give up on it at first. You know, if you think about it, you would double flinch it at first until you got used to it. You know, they're calling it. Now you got to make it into your game and think about it a little bit. Okay. I can't let that pitch go. I got, and I can't give up on that pitch. Where you know, if they throw it inside, you know, if you throw an, a, a breaking mm -hmm. ball that's up and in, 
I don't think anyone's going to really stand in there. You know, you're just like, how's that? <laughs> no, I, you know who was good at that when we played? A guy, a reliever with the Mets, Turk Wendell. He used to always have a backup slider that would come in yep. high and high and inside, man. And I used to hate it. And he would throw it to me. And it seemed like he knew he, how he was doing it. And, like, I don't understand it. He would get strikes on it. I'm like, I can't hit that pitch. I can't. <laughs> That's a hard pitch to hit. And then to keep it, it fair, it's almost impossible. Yeah. You know, you're jamming yourself or you're going to pull it foul. I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'll just take it. And then you strike me out. I'm like, man, you know, it's your pitch. If you could do that, it's your pitch. That's a hard, that's a hard one to back up slider, you know? The, any, anything coming in like that. It's going to, we, I'm trying to think what, what organization we did it with. There was a, there was, there was a stud, Charlie O'Brien. Okay, so Charlie was telling us, I got to be with him in spring training when I was with the Expos. And, you know, so it's myself, Brian Schneider, Michael Barrett, and Charlie. And all three of us were just like little kids in a candy store. Like, oh, my God, this is, this is the guy that we all, you know, mimic, and this is how we all set up. So he probably absolutely hated us in spring training because we were like little kids just on his hip the whole time. And we started talking about different things. And they did a study with the Braves, with, uh, with Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz, on front door breaking balls. You know, Smoltz, I think Smoltz was the one. Him and Maddox were really doing it on how effective, you know, that pitch would be. It's just something that they, they did one year and just they got some analytics on it. And it was just the offer rate from a hitter was almost at, like, zero. You know, just nobody – knew how to react to that or stay in or, you know, put a good swing on it. So it's, you know, I mean, they were doing it back. That was one of the early nineties, I think when those guys were, were yeah. killing it. So when you, uh, so we, everybody watched the world series, you know, I think Kevin cash got blasted a little bit and right off the bat. Now their analytics has dominated this game. There are stats for everything, even for catching. I mean, we didn't, yeah. We didn't have that. I would have loved to see, you know, the stats when I caught on how the receiving worked and all that. We just, you know, hey, throw some guys out, catch the ball, block the ball. That was, if you do a good job, we're not going to give up a lot of runs, but there was no metrics for that. When you look at the way that the games are kind of scripted right now, you know, you had, you had Snell dominating, like carving everybody up, and then they yank them. It's 72 pitches, nine Ks, and gives up a, a weak little hit up the middle. Yep. What's kind of your where, – where do you think the game is with uh, – in regards to almost kind of having other people tell you when and where you should do things instead of trusting your gut? Man, I, I'm a big fan of Dusty Baker. Um, and he's not all analytics, as you know. He's He's – um, my gut told me a lot of things that he would move was because of how he knows his players. And I mean, I'm not a good pinch hitter. He put me in a pinch hit one time. I said, what are you nuts? I said, I don't pinch hit. He goes, get in there and pinch hit. And I hit a double with the bases loaded. I was like, what the heck? You know, like that's the first time I ever got a hit. I'm like, he does things that, you know, you can't explain. But that whole process of the analytics, I mean, it's, it's getting a little bit, out of hand I think it's taken away from the game it's taken away from knowing your players and knowing what they can and giving them the opportunity you know to see what they can get improve themselves they, they could get out of situations there's you know there's there's times when they are the best pitcher on the team just like 
Snell that night. He was the best opportunity they had. When they took him out, I, I told my wife, she was sleeping. I woke her up. I said, the game's over. She was like, what? I said, yep. Dodgers, Dodgers are going to win now. And you see everybody smiling on the Dodgers bench. They were all happy. I was like, look, everyone's excited. I said, the next three hitters have not put the ball. They haven't even had a good foul tip. They struck out six, the six, six side bats that they came up, you know, and I go, they were due to put, you know, the hit. And I was, why in the world would make you think that you needed to bring somebody else in? I don't know. No analytic could explain that to me. And you can't, I don't care what you say. It's the third time around. Uh, that's fine. He, he's been dominating everybody. Nobody's touched him, but one little blue pit, not a big deal. Let the guy work. That's what he is. And he was your horse for the, you got to ride him a little bit longer. I think, you know, giving him opportunity to get a, get out of that and get a double play, strike one out and double play and get out. You know, he, he had the opportunity, but when you took him out, the gas was off, off the pedal. You know, you, you took the gas off and, and you just made the other team have the momentum at that point. And that's yeah, what the they confidence went up. That's what they wanted. They didn't, want, they didn't care who came in the game at that point. You could have brought anybody. They were going to get the, you know, they were going to get lit up. Mm -hmm. No matter who it was you brought in, it didn't matter. And there was nobody better at that point than what you had in the game. So there was no need to look at analytics, I think, at that point. That's my opinion. I mean, Cash has got a no, job. I'm the, I'm the same way. I look at it and I'm like, how many times – When's the last time you saw a guy throw a complete game? You know, you'd have, I mean, they don't think do it anymore. how many guys that would go, hey, this is, I got this game. Schilling for once. You know, Kurt, Kurt would say, he told us that there were games, I think when, when they were in Arizona, where he literally walked down to the bullpen after he got done warming up. And he, guys, he goes, I got this today. He goes, you guys just enjoy your day off. And he goes, and he went out there and, and threw a complete game. You know, guys just – I don't know if it's the way that they train or if it's just the numbers thing or, well, like, you know, in the in six and a thirds inning, he's going to lose two miles an hour. I don't know what it is, but, you know, you don't have that that bulldog mentality, you know, of, hey, I'm the, I'm the guy today. You know, you're not going to – you're going to have to really pry me off of this mound. You know, if a, if a manager comes out there, hey – Turn right around and go back to the dugout. I got this. I'm going to finish this up. We're going to win. We're going to come back. You know, that's that's the, that's the shit I love to see. You know, when guys are – you can – when you got a guy who's dealing on the mound and you know it's in your head, you know, if you struck out two times and not just strike out but look really bad, there's times you go up to the plate and you're just like, man, I don't have a chance against this guy today. You know, he's just – I got to tip my hat. You know, but that's the, that's the crazy part of the game right now that – I think a lot of people can't understand, and there's so many arguments for, well, the numbers showed this over over the course of a season. And if it's the last game of the year, you you got to throw all that stuff out and just be like, hey, we're letting it all hang out today. you gotta, you got to play to get to tomorrow. Yeah, you got to let it all hang out, and that's exactly your point is right. I mean, there's not too many pitchers anymore like the way Schilling was. His mentality was, today's my day to pitch. I mean, it's his day to pitch. He's pitching nine. That's his mentality. He ain't thinking about, okay, I'm going to go five and going to leave it to the sixth inning specialist and the seventh inning guy, the setup man. You know, it's not that. He's coming in to pitch the game. That's his day to pitch, just like when Randy would pitch. Randy Johnson, he would be like, you know, it's his day. You expected him to go out and go the distance. And if he didn't, he would be like, okay, let's, you know, we'll give him the help. But we expected him to go all nine. You know, we're shooting for eight, nine innings out of him. You know, you know, we're not thinking anything less. 
And guys don't have that mentality now. They're thinking if they get through five, they did enough. You know, they can hand it over to the next guy, you know, because they got the sixth inning guy, the seventh inning specialist, the eighth inning setup man, then the ninth inning closer. Everybody's got titles now, and everybody has to have, you know, their role and feel like they have to play their role in every game, which they don't. If you have that horse, that mentality like they used to, they don't have that. You don't have guys that want to go full games now. Or I, I don't know what happened to it, to be honest with you, but if it's analytics or or if it's pitch counts and now that, that they're getting into more so, but there's guys that have low pitch counts and they take them out early anyway. So I don't, I don't see that being part of it. To me, to me, the the guy that wants to pitch that full game, you know, the, the go the distance and save the bullpen. So we can have a day that where that, that, that pitcher is struggling and they need the help. And then, and then we have the bullpen. That's what the bullpen's for, but not, not, not to carry your load through the whole season. That's going to wear you guys out. It's going to wear out the guys, you know, you can't, you can't ride the bullpen that long. And, and that's what they do now. They're, they're riding out bullpens. Look at Philly. They were disastrous in the bullpen this year. because Guys were only going four or five innings, you know, they couldn't even go six, seven innings. And, and you're wearing out hey, your bullpen. If, if you're, if you're facing a guy in a bullpen and you're seeing him three or four times in a series, you yeah. got him. I mean, those, yeah. if he comes out one time and wow, I wasn't ready for that. I didn't know he had that. But now, if I'm seeing him two, three times in a series, okay, this is what he did last time. You know, typically if he's a bullpen guy, he's a two-pitch guy, I'm going to, you know, that slider was was unhittable. I'm not even going to attempt at that. You know, you, you get into a, a – you see guys that have their tendencies, and it usually takes a couple times around the order to, to yeah. see it. But your third time, you're going to be on that, you know, especially if it's a, a two-pitch guy. Yeah, absolutely, man. You make a you make a great point because I've had plenty of guys where I've only faced them one time and and then they look nasty to you. You're like, man, I didn't, you know, I didn't have, I didn't know he had a breaking ball like that, or I didn't expect him to have that, you know, and a sinker inside. But the next time I faced him, I knew he was going to throw me that sinker, in, and I'd open up and I'd be waiting for it, and then, then I I jack him because you already knew, you know. But you faced him before. But if you're only going to face him the one time or, or only get one at bat off the guy, it, it makes your chances are a lot less. But like you said, you know, you got these guys coming in a couple times in a series. I mean, they're going to give it up. They're gonna, they're just meant to give it up, and and it's going to happen. And for you to think otherwise, it's it's not it's not going to happen. You can't you can't run them out there that long. You they're not meant to be exposed that much. Yep. You know, you got yep. you got to hide them. Do you think? Uh, I mean, we all watch baseball. You thought about getting back into the game at all, as far as uh, either managing or some type of coordinator aspect? Um, I've thought about it plenty of times, but um, I've, I've re really never had to, I guess, the position um, um, appointed or asked. Um, they asked me when I was first playing and I was still playing, you know, and um, like 2004 and five, when I was still playing, they're like, they asked me if I'd be interested when I was done playing. But ever since I finished playing, nobody's ever contacted me for it or anything. So. I just kind of brushed it off, never really contacted anybody on my own, on my end, to do it, you know. But that's why well, I always say catchers, catchers make the best managers, in my opinion. I mean, we, we're the guys that, you know, run the show out on there, and we, we see everything. And that's why I think when you, you get a catcher compared to, you know, no offense to anyone else out there, but I just think that the catching position, there's so much more from a mental aspect to know how the game works, you know, from – from your bullpen guys coming in to your starters, how long they're going to go, and just controlling the flow of the game. You yeah, know? absolutely. I do have one. I do have one question. So when we had when we had Kurt on the show, 
Mm -hmm. He gave us a, a funny little story during a hurricane down in Miami when they were playing. And he mentioned, uh, oh, he mentioned a bunch of the guys came out with, uh, with paintball guns that he went out and bought. He said it was a, a pretty fun time. And he said they, uh, they kind of got you pretty good the next day when you got to the clubhouse. So I know if you want to elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, they got us with the whole uh, painting of the horse. And <clears throat> the cops came in and they said they were going to arrest us and take us in because they had video of us doing everything. And they uh Wayne, I remember Wayne Gomes was trying to get out of it. I wasn't me. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And he was all his, all his attorney. And <laughs> yeah, it got, a little, it got a little funny in there for a while. But I, I was just, I, I was, I was more intimidated, thinking like, okay, I'm gonna get in trouble with the manager now. I'm thinking, okay, well, they're gonna release me, and then I'm like, okay, whatever it is, they're not gonna release everybody, so they can't do this. So I kind of just went with it, you know, took the blow. But uh, it, it was part of the learning process, I guess. You know, they hazed us. They got us. He, he did a good job on it. <laughs> cool. now, you, now, when you when when you got to, um, you know, a lot of people in this area, they they know the name Darren Dalton. You know, they can look up stats. You know, um, think of, I was talking to Dave Hollins about Dutch a little bit. And me and Dave are from the, the same hometown. So I've known him for a little while. But when you first got to meet Dalton with the Phillies, you know, what was his leadership skills were off the chart. Anyone I've ever spoke with just said, you know, that was a guy that could walk into a room and everyone stopped. They wanted him to talk. They wanted, wanted him to get him pumped up. You know, what did he do for you guys, you know, as a young catcher, you know, to say, hey, this is, this is kind of the big league way. This is how it works. You know, this is what you need to do. What was some of the, some of the stuff that he passed on to you? Um, basically, uh, with his time there, when I was there, it was more like he led by leadership, like you said, but he, he played more of a quiet role, like, like kind of like Fergosi, he would just be intimidating when he walked in the room and he demanded your attention. And if you didn't do things like they expected you to do, they would let you know about it. So they were kind of like, you were kind of like walking on eggshells as a rookie. Like you better do things their way or the right way. Keep your mouth shut, watch us do it and then do as we do and don't be heard. Basically. That's what, that's basically an old school mentality. They don't, they just be quiet, son. You're a kid here. <laughs> you know, we've been around. You're spoken to. Yeah. So that's kind of like what he wanted. And, and, and I respected him for that because every, everybody was, you know, they respected him and they were nice to him. And, you know, he, you could see that well, all the pitchers, you know, they wanted him in the game. They were, you know, and, and Dutch was pretty beat up at that time when I, when I came in, you know, he was, you know, towards the end of his career and always with, you know, ice bags on his knees and shoulders and elbows, you name it. He was just ice bagged out. And, you know, I just saw what he went through to get on the field and, each day and, and, and going in a training room and working out hard. You know, I, I admired that. Uh, he would put the time in and the dedication to make his body right so he could go beat it up again another night. And it was just, I don't know how long he could take that, you know, that abuse, but, you know, he did it. He did it for a long time. And, you know, being being taking a beating the way he did and, you know, and continuing his playing and, and pitcher still wanted him out there because he was the man. He, you know, he knew how to run the game, you know, that you got to respect that. So there's the, the last thing I wanted to bring up is you got me into a, a group on, on Facebook 
which is pretty interesting. It deals with um, sports memorabilia uh, for guys that have played. Um, a guy named Adam First. First, yep. is that his name? Okay, First, so, yeah. uh, and Adam started a, a group called the, the Trove Sports Den, right? Yep. So why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, you know, kind of how you're involved and, and it's a, it's a pretty neat little platform for, for fans, you know, who are interested in, in collecting, you know, from um, memorabilia from different guys across the, uh, across the, um, the last few decades. So how did you, how'd you get involved with that? Uh, actually, I got involved with it with um, Jerry Spradlin. I don't know if you remember Jerry Spradlin. And yep. um, he contacted me on Facebook and basically told me what he was doing with Adam, um, recruiting guys and, you know, and basically making a website to have not only fans interact with old players, but have players be able to talk to fans um, give them stories, um, have us post things once a week. So we, he wants us to post a story of something. Either he'll give us a title or we'll make up our own title. And we have to post a story every week just so fans could have something to read, um, which is nice. So you get a different story from all the guys. And, and then you can interact with them, ask them questions. You could have one-on-one -on -one phone calls with them if you want to do phone calls. And then you have personal items too. If we have items that we have like at the house or anything and some fans may want it or you could put it up for sale and put it up or you could auction it and, and they could do an auction so that they could bid on it. Um, but it's just a, a pretty neat way to a bring, bring back some old players that maybe have been, you know, not, not so much forgotten, maybe um, just, you know, not been in the limelight, so to speak. And now you can bring them in and then old fans that were fans, or maybe you want to be a fan and you didn't know much about that player and you're, you're interested in them. You can, you can do things and then you're able to connect with them and, you know, obviously get autographs from them. You can purchase things from them and he's got a subscription so you can sign up and be part of that. Um, as a fan, you, you know, I think it's like $9 or $10 and he's got another package for $14 and it gives you a year subscription, free autographs and then discounts on shows tickets ticket items and but he's done well and then i talked to dave doster about it too you remember dave doster um yep 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 so i talked to him about it just made sure everything was legit what he was talking about and he was having a great time doing it so i started doing it and then i started bringing on some other guys like wendell mcgee and i brought him on a couple other guys matt beach um just a bunch of guys have been, been having a good time doing it you know it's just the way you know yeah, you can make a, you know make a little money doing it. I mean, you're not gonna get rich on it. Don't think of anything like that. But you know, you can make a few dollars on it. At the same time, it gives you a way to give back to the fans, so to speak. And you know, and, and make it makes it, it makes it nice, so a nice way to give back. I feel like anyway. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty neat platform. You know, Jerry uh, Jerry told me about that a little bit too. Um, you know, I I talk with Doster a little bit on Facebook and a few of the other guys too. And you know, it's. Uh, one of those things are it's a good chance for us to kind of stay in touch with everybody you know kind of with what we we did with this the catching community is such a tight-knit group and we're all whether it's a you know a coordinator for an organization um, guys that have played you know or even even college coaches that are looking for more information on how to make their catchers better you know we always we're very active on twitter and and we'll just start conversations, you know, and let everyone jump in and, 
to give our opinion on, hey, this is what, what I would do in this situation. This is what I think, you know, for for this, for receiving or for blocking or, you know, right. so it, it keeps us busy. And <clears throat> at the end of the day, you know, it's kind of everyone's way to give back to the game. You know, we, we're yeah. the guys that have, you know, gone through it. And there's a lot of kids out there today that are, you know, striving to get to the same level. Um, now with the, the way that the draft set up and the whole pandemic thing, you know, who knows what the draft and everything's going to look like going forward and eliminating minor league teams. But, you know, it, it's probably going to be a little harder, you know, to, to kind of get into that club, you know, than, uh, than it was you know, maybe four or five years ago. Yeah, I, I wish we would have had something like this when we played. You know, they didn't have all this technology when we played and, you know, where you could learn from yeah, other the big guys. V, the big VHS tapes with the, the handheld, you know, video camera and you'd have to put it on a, a television and hit the play button and the pause. And <laughs> I, I, I still got all my tapes from all my teams on VHS, man. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got one from, uh, from Clearwater in 98 and it, the quality is so bad. <laughs> But, you know, my son would, I showed my son it and, um, you know, it was cool for him. He wasn't born when I was playing. So, you know, when I get done playing and we had him and, you know, he's like, oh, okay, now I get it. It doesn't mean he's going to listen to me because you know, right. kids don't listen to their dad to, to try to help him out. It's, oh, I got this. I'll, I'll you know, dad, you can take me for pitching lessons. You know, who can you take with the, to let me hit? I go, well, I can teach you how to hit. No, I saw your stats. I'd go <laughs> So, but no, man, I, I, I want to thank you for, uh, for coming on the show. I, you know, it's too bad Tyler got stuck off at work. Um, Tyler's out in Omaha, Nebraska. You know, he's a, a minor league catcher. Okay. And, you know, so we've, we've gone and we've just basically reached out to a bunch of guys. I've, I have messaged Charles Johnson a few times, have not heard back from him. You know, um, being a former Kane, I'd, I'd love to get him on the show as well. And a few other yeah. guys, um, even guys like Piazza that are, you know, former guys. But, you know, we, we've had some we've had some guys from South Florida down there. And, you know, obviously um, being up north with the weather situation, a little difficult. But, shoot, anytime you can get a chance to, to talk catching, that's that's kind of what we're what we've put together for the last year. So we're having fun with it. And, you know, we're. Glad that you took time out of your busy schedule to come on and, and talk some catching. And ever want to come back, you just simply shoot me a text. I'd love to have you back on. I appreciate it, man. You're, what you're doing is a great thing. And uh, it's nice that you bring some, some of those back and talk a little bit and like me. And CJ's a good dude, so I hope he does reach out to you. And, um, you know, don't, don't give up on that. He was a good guy. I like playing with him in Colorado. He was a genuine guy. We worked together for a little bit. And I um, ah, appreciate it, man. Sorry I couldn't see you, Tyler. But. Hope everything's well and uh, shoot me a buzz. You got my number anytime. You know, anytime I you need. Appreciate it. You got it, All brother. Right, Thank you. You have yourself a good day, man. I'll talk to you soon. You got it, brother. Thank you, man. Be good. All right, take care. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. We want to give a special shout out and a thank you to Bobby for taking the time to sit down with Chris and dropping just some loads of information on this episode. Be sure to go check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Mound Visit. All right, guys, jump right into this next episode. We have current Rangers catcher Jose Trevino.